Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 226. A good Chedesh El. May we all be blessed with Aksiva Vichsimeteva, as is the custom to begin greeting each other from the Chedesh El. Some people begin already Tezvov, of Chofov, which is 40 days before Rosh Hashanah. And of course, the theme of Elul in general is so fitting and apropos to My Life, Chassidus Applied. And that is It's a time for introspection, a time for looking into our own self, into soul searching, and looking at things we can improve, make better, correct the past, and prepare for the new year. So El is both the last month of the past year, in this case, Tovshin Ayin Ches, and the Hagdoma Hachone, preparation to the year Tovshin Ayin Tes. And uh, as such, each day, as the Friedrich Rebbe says in one sicha, is like an entire year, is an entire month, more than an entire month. Every day is like an entire year because we're, we're accounting for and reviewing the entire past year and preparing for the year ahead. So we will begin with this week's Parsha's Kiseitze, uh, connecting that also to the theme of El, and as well as the fifth week of the Shiva de Nechemte. As we know, as the Gemara says, and we uh, implemented in our recitation of the Haftedis, that the Haftedis each week is usually from Me'ein HaParsha, something about that, some connection to the Parsha, except there are exceptions, and one of them is the 10, actually 10, uh, 12 weeks, and those are the three weeks of affliction, the Tlosa, but the Puranusa, these are the three weeks of the Sha. The Gimel, the the Drei Wochen, Benam Tzorim, from Shavosah Batamas to Tishabov, followed by seven weeks of consolation or comfort, Shiva Dinachemta, followed by two weeks of Tiyufta Tshuva, the weeks from Rosh Hashanah till Sukkot. So we're now in the fifth week of the Shiva Dinachemta. It's interesting that the whole Elul is the last four weeks of these seven weeks of comfort. Very fitting, because El is the month also of compassion, Chedesh HaRachmim. This is the month when Moshe Rabbeinu was successful in persuading God to forgive and be compassionate to the Jewish people through revealing the 13 attributes of compassion, Yud Gimel Midas HaRachmim, as described in Pasha Kisisa, which we invoke throughout this month, and especially then with Slichus, and then we get... It accelerates and, of course, it comes to this high point at Yom, on Yom Kippur when Moshe <coughs> excuse me, descended from the mountain with a second tablet, successful. So this is a period, a very intense and powerful period of actually being able to repair anything. You don't always have such opportunities, the opportunity to find hope, to find reconciliation, to find ways to repair, to correct, and even intensify even more than it was before everything, both our personal lives, our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with our spouses. In every given way, this is the month that has that power. And we recreate. We are walking in the footsteps of Meshur Rabbeinu, who paved the way, pioneered the way, by actually prevailing over God that, we, that hope is possible, that correction is possible even after grave sins. And that's what Chedesh El in general is about. So it's fitting that the Shiva de Nechemt is what? Seven months, seven weeks of comfort and consolation after destruction of all forms. 
So it's fitting. So what is the story of the fifth week of consolation? So we've been going over each one of the weeks in his personal application, according to Chassidus, based on the Medrash Psikta, Rapsi, excited by the Avudraham, that it's a dialogue between man and God. And the fifth week that we're going into <clears throat> is the fifth stage of this dialogue. If you want it more in detail, you can actually go online to MeaningfulLife.com, and I wrote it out with exercises, what these seven steps are in our own personal lives. But I've been summing it up briefly in this My Life episodes. So just to sum up what, where we're at. So the weeks begin, of course, the first one's Nachmu, Nachmu, Ami, where God sends the prophet to console the people. The first effort is that each of us, including the prophet, the, we mortals have to console each other. But after we reach that stage, then we come back and say, God has forsaken me in week two. We've done everything humanly possible to heal and comfort each other. And we want a new level. We want God himself to come. Then week three, our cry reaches heaven. And it's acknowledged that we are not consoled by each other. We want a higher form of consolation. And week four, God actually implements that. Last week, actually yesterday. Um, and a new divine power enters our life, as we discussed last week, the Anoichi, Anoichi, a double Anoichi, double of Matan both in quantity and in quality. Then comes week five. And week five, we say, Translated, Sing, barren one, you who have not given birth. Burst into song and jubilate. You have not experienced birth pangs. For the children of the desolate are more than the children of the married, says God. So this is referring to even a deeper connection. Because everything is Milan Bekadish, we always climb, we always grow higher. So this is even a deeper connection. After the initial reconnect between Aneche and Neche and us, after there's been a break, after there's been a betrayal, then comes the next dimension is that we are now going to create a rebirth. Not enough just to console the barren one, the one that has not given birth, but that you can actually give birth. A new type of birth that comes after the pain and the desolation that came through being barren. And barren, of course, refers to all levels, physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. So even though we may feel barren, have God given birth, we learn to sing. Not because we accept the barren state, but because we learn new ways to give birth. Whether it's through, through students, whether it's through activities that we do. Remember, good deeds are also our children, are also our offspring. My paid in mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are called fruit. So there are many ways of how we can create rebirth. And that's necessary. It's not enough to get back to square one. Because then the whole descent, all the pain and all the, and all the barrenness and all the, the desolation didn't gain anything. We just got back to where we were. That's why Yerid Etzer Chali is a fundamental theme in Chassidus. That every descent is meant to create a profit. Something has to benefit. And the benefit is that we go through these darker moments in order to reach even greater light. And that's not what happens. In El, Moshe is praying after the Chet Eagle. What does it yield? Yom Kippur, the second tablet, which are greater than the first. The Mile of Tshuva. So each in our own personal way, this is a time period where not just know that you're not damaged goods and we can just correct and compensate, but you actually can create greater things 
than you initially would have created because you've learned from the darkness. You learn from the distance. And you learn to get even closer and appreciate it even more, even in a more profound way. So this applies, and I'm specifically speaking in very general terms because each of us have our own challenges. Some of us are experiencing real tragedy, God forbid. The Ebrista should only be Menachem, all those that do. Some experience it more personally, internally, not in a physical sense, emotionally. And each one of us have our own setbacks. And even someone whose things are going relatively well, if good is good, is better, is better. If good is good, is better, not better. So whoever you are and wherever you are, El offers opportunity to get to deeper places. And this connects also to the Pasha Kiseitse, one of the tremendous lessons, and such a profound psychological insight, as well as empowering, is the Rebbe's diuk in the Pasha Kiseitse Lemochama Alevecha. So there right away you see, first of all, Mochama, there's a war to be fought. But here's what the verse says. Usually you'd say, Kilsilcha Mimaivecha. Why does it say, Kiseitse Lemochama Alevecha? The word Seitse and Al. When you will wage war with your enemy. Seitz and Muhammad suggests going out to war. Why, why, why the, every, every word is precise in Torah. Why the word Yitzhiya? In Hebrew. And the answer is very, very simple, but profound. That the, every war fought is outside of your own inner soul and inner spirit. Things that have happened to us, happen to us. We may, you may have suffered, but you're not a sufferer. You may have experienced some negative experience, but you're not a negative person. Because you are a pure soul, a divine soul, pure, and always remains pure. So things happen to us, does not define us. You're not defined by your negative experiences, period. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, it doesn't mean we should ignore it. We absolutely have to correct that, especially if it's affecting us. But it's critical to know inside you, not to get into that helpless, resigned state, Oh, it's too late for me. Look what happened to me. I am now damaged. Goods. No hope. No, that's not correct. So when any war you fight, and there are wars to be fought, it's kiseitz l'mocham. You fight a war outside of you, and you see even in a strategic, even in physical wars, wars that are not fought on your own territory, are fought in the enemy's territory, you're far more in a winning position. One of the reasons the United States was so strong throughout the wars was the war, World War I, World War II, were all fought in Europe. Because when a war is fighting in your own area, it, it ravages the area and it affects the citizens. So even if you win the war, there are always going to be consequences. Same thing psychologically and emotionally. You want the war to be fought where the enemy is, not in your inner territory, not in your home, not in your soul, not in your spirit. So you go you go out, and you're always alevecho. The art of war, one of the key things to remember is attitude, a winning attitude. Wins, wars are won even before they're fought by attitude. The Rebbe cites when Friedrich Rebbe, a custom in the early days of uh, wars, saw certain armies, when they would go out to war, they would sing a march of victory march. They haven't even fought one battle. Seeing already a victory march seems a little cocky. No, because it's an attitude. We are definitely going to win. Like what the Tur says, why Jews wear white when they go into Rosh Hashanah. Because they know Ufyas, they know that this nation knows the personality of God. Ufya. Shalom Azu. They know the personality that God will de- they'll definitely be victorious. So they go in with white clothes, which indicate victory. That's a winning attitude. So even though a war has to be fought, you go in with that comp- complete, complete optimism and power and conviction of faith and trust that you will be victorious.
This is the attitude of El. So it's not about how low we are and how bad you are and so on. On the contrary, it's saying because we have that indomitable spirit that is connected to the divine, nothing, we're indestructible. Yet there are challenges and we don't ignore them. Moshe Rabbeinu goes on the mountain and, and absolutely um, recognizes and acknowledges what happened, but he's confident and he will not take no for an answer and neither do we. And that's a critical component in anything. You love somebody and you hurt them, find a way to reach them. Don't cover up, don't try to deny, don't minimize. Address it, take the bull by the horns, face it head on, but be honest and accountable. There's the lesson of Elul. And say, yes, I believe that we can repair. But it's not just lip service. We're not talking about just going and doing it again, God forbid. We're talking about a true commitment. And commitments, words from the heart enter the heart. When someone feels that commitment, it will have an effect. So this is the lessons that we're learning in this week, the fifth week of Nechemta, of the Shiva de Nechemta and Pasha Kiseitse. This week will also be Yud Gimel El. Yud Gimel El is the anniversary of the Friedrich Reb in Tofresh Nun Zayin. So there are many things that can be said. I want to talk one or two lessons from marriage. Since you also see, if you look at the Haftarah, the theme of marriage, and later in the Pesukim, it says that God says, I see every one of you as a forsaken wife. Meaning that God treats and has the compassion. So the concept of marriage of Anila Deidi Vedeidi Li, the theme of Elul, I am to my beloved and beloved, my beloved to my, is not just marriage between human beings. As we know, the whole Shirashirim is a moshal. The Shirashirim, the romantic story of Shirashirim is a moshal for Knesset Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God and the Jewish people, which is a marriage. Yem Chasunose Zemat and And where did that marriage get consummated? And Yem Kippur. That's where the Pesach is used. Even though Matan Teda by Shavuos is also compared to Chasana, but, but Yom Kippur is the real, because that's when it was fully accepted on both ends. So Yom Kippur, and that's not even the end, it says, La'asad Lavi, Mashiach comes, will be the Nesuyan, will be the complete finishing of the, because Fort Golis is a form of a husband that went off to a distant land, away from his spouse. That's Golis. But Gula will be the total union forever and ever. But the chasna happened on Matan Teda and, and, and Yom Kippur. So marriage is a theme of this month. The month of Psula, this is the, the is mazel of the month. Maybe, and this is one of the reasons that the Rabbeim tried to make marriages in the month of El. It was either Kislev or El. But El is a month of chasna, and therefore the chasna of Fidi Kareba wasn't used Gimel El. So many lessons to be learned. There are many interesting stories. I'll just share one which is connected with the Atzim thing. Interestingly, that when you look back, the marriage happened in Tafresh Nun Zayin would be 121 years ago. That was the marriage. And of course, he yielded the children of the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebetzin, and the second child being the Rebetzin Chaim Mushka, who of course is our Rebetzin of the Rebbe. But there's something more, most very interesting, that when the Rabbeim, this starts with Alter Rebbe, there was a custom, they went and they said, my modim, my modich siddis, sometimes lengthy discourses, at the wedding of their children, of their in-laws, <coughs> with their children, and also sometimes of their brothers and sisters and other family members. The Rebbe Rashab, indeed, that custom, said a bunch of my modim. He said, for who and tofresh and of course the big hemshech, or the long that he said over the period of the Sheva Brachas. Remain with us, tremendous Hemshechim and So you say, what's the connection? 
you know, you're dancing at your children's wedding. In Hanami, it's a, it's a wedding, a child, child of a Rebbe. But what's the connection? What, is, what do we learn from that personally when you read these Maimorim? They're deep Maimorim. They teach you a lot about Chasana and what Yichud Zun is and the different Dargis of Yichudim that he explains, especially in Samach to Samach, and so on. But there's another story that maybe can enlighten that. When the Friedrich Rebbe was a little child, the famous story, he was sleeping. The Rebbe was sitting, the Rebbe Rashab was sitting with a chosid, and he saw the little child sleeping, and he had a achuke, a yearning to go over to kiss him. And instead, he said to the chosid, he said, he's going to, instead, he's going to take that and channel that into achsidah And he sat down and wrote a maimer for the Friedrich Rebbe. And later, he grew older, he gave him the maimer, said, this is achsidah shakush. It always struck me this story. Why couldn't he give him a kiss as well as write the Maimon? Hugging and kissing our children is a valuable thing. So I never saw an answer for it directly, but maybe you can say is because he wanted to take the, the, the temporary kiss and turn it into an eternal kiss. And perhaps if he would have released it in the kiss, it may have taken away some of that energy. I am sure that Rebbe Rashab kissed and hugged his son many times. But that moment, that's what he left him. And we have a mimer till this day that embodies, personifies the love of a rebbe to his child, of a father to his child. And what? In Aksidah Shakush called a mimer. A mimer is a, is a sign of love. When a rebbe says a mimer, when a rebbe writes a mimer, he's writing it with all the love because he's spending, he's deciding this is the most important thing he can be doing right now. So here the chasen of the Friedrich Rebbe and the rebbe Rashab said, he's long my modem. And, and not just long, but also an echus in quality. And we have till this day, 121 years later, we have these mamonim to live with and to apply to our lives. So, we're not, so in a way, we're like at the wedding. Even though begashmis, we were not there. But we have a non-nafshik sovis yehovis, the Rebbe investing his soul, his spirit. The simchiyad is now documented forever. There were no videos then. Even if there were, so it would have been interesting video, of course. But there's nothing like a Rebbe investing it in, in a document, in words, in holy words, in chassidish words, and giving it to us, giving it, of course, for his son and for the generations to come, but for us as well. And there we have the wedding living with us. So when we look at the Maimar Samach Tasamach or Hukah or the other Maimarim that was said in that period, you have the Chasana living in a living way that, and when you apply it to your life, you're like, it's like actually, you're applying that wedding and that love and that simcha and everything that Anila Dei that it comes with in our personal lives. So, okay. With that, we can use that, of course, as a lesson to our own personal lives that when we get married and we have built our families, hopefully healthy, beautiful families, that we always remember that part of it is not just the physical love and not just a beautiful warm home and providing have health, all that, absolutely. But also infuse it with ruchnis, with something that's eternal. We call it a binyan adayad. When you have a bias molis vodim, filled with svarim, you have a bias with his teda, with his yirishamayim, with the houses infused with light, and anyone who comes in feels it. Like the Rebbe said, a bias, a cheder, a bias based chabad. And filled with that in every room, what you're doing, you're turning your house into a channel for the divine. A mini That's the lesson. And we learn chsidis. And you maybe even say some insights into chsidis. Or you write, or you you're turning your home and your life and your marriage into something that is eternal forever. 
and it elevates all the other aspects of it, which of course are all necessary, into a completely different dimension. That's the lesson we learn for each one of us, that every marriage needs to have the third partner, Hashem, but not just technically, but to introduce godliness into your life by having a shear once a week or more often, or inviting someone to speak, making sure Friday night Shabbos and Ryamtif is filled with exciting words, not boring and monotonous and by rote, infusing it with joy, infusing it with warmth, infusing it with chassidishkeit, which is, of course, the essence of all the Maimori chassidis that we learn. And this that directly impacts on the, and will benefit any marriage and any union, including, of course, the impact on the children and everyone that lives or comes into that home. Okay. With that, let us go now to some questions. First question is, before questions, let me make my announcements. Firstly, you can send in and submit any question you want anonymously, completely confidentially at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And there you'll also find the archives of all previous episodes, as well as the essays of the previous three years and the ones that we keep posting week after week, new ones from this year's essay contest, as well as other resources that are very useful in applying chassidus to your personal life. We've covered literally, I would say, probably thousands of topics over the last 225 episodes, and they're all timestamped in the YouTube version of the videos, so easily found. And you can search for them in that way. Um, we also survive on your support. So please be generous, especially in the month of El, when it's customary to add in tzedakah, to include us in your tzedakah, which is, goes toward uh, preparing and delivering and broadcasting these programs, which is free service to the public, surviving on your generosity. And you can go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. You can dedicate it to a loved one, memory of someone, in any way you want, you can also announce your business or anything that you're involved in that you would like to share with the thousands and thousands of people that listen to these programs very, very avidly, if I may say. Okay, with that, let us go back to the topic. So firstly, I'll give you a little cross-reference. Episode 81 is where I spoke about Kipasha Kiseitze earlier in earlier years, as well as about Yud Gimel, the 13th of El. Okay, question. Did the Rebbe say anything about free speech when it offends others, as in the 1977 neo-Nazi march in Skokie, Illinois? So some while ago, in 1977, there was the famous march, and I think it ended not happening, but there was a whole fight all the way in the courts, freedom of speech, and they were going, Skokie was, I believe, 70% or more Jewish, and many, many Holocaust survivors, so it was like an offensive thing. But on the other hand, America free speech is a given right, even hate speech, as long as you're not invoke in, in, inciting violence or doing anything destructive directly to someone. But people can speak freely. So there was the whole fight about it. It was in 1977, the ACLU went to court to defend the Nazi Party of America, the right to march to Skokie. I'm wondering if the Rebbe spoke about it at the time. Now, I don't recall him speaking about it. I, I, I actually went to search if there were other places that the Rebbe spoke about this concept. Because on one hand, the Rebbe, of course, was a great advocate of this Malchus Chesed, the Bill of Rights. Freedom of speech, remember, has the good side of it. It goes hand in hand with freedom of religion and free press, free expression, which, of course, allowed Jews to thrive in this country. In all the countries before the United States became a, con- a country, you did not have freedom of speech, 
And that extended also for not freedom of worship and religion. So the Rebbe was a very strong advocate, obviously, for a country that bases that on the fact that every human being has a divine right, as, exp- as expressed in the Declaration of Independence, the inalienable rights, including free expression and free speech. So I looked, did the Rebbe ever speak about, of course, the other side to it, the downside, which is people can then say things that are also offensive and things that are hateful and things that are, because freedom of speech guarantees that and you can't limit it because if you limit it, then who's going to decide what is free, what is, what, what is allowed, what isn't allowed? So I have not found directly, but I wanted to ask the question because it's a good, great question. It came in months ago, but as I said, I'm catching up. So if anyone has anything from the Rebbe directly, in a letter, in a yechidus, in a story, or a fabrengen, or any other way, dollars, I would definitely be appreciative, and it would be L'tayel Sarabim, and I would share it. But I will share that there isn't maybe specific about it, but there's the, the idea when the Rebbe began speaking, especially in the late uh, 70s, which was right then, and then the 80s, he did speak about how the schools can turn into jungles, with people, students using weapons and having chutzpah and so on, uprising against authority and against the discipline of the school systems and so on, when there's a lack of ayin reyev eizen shamas. And that's what that became out very strongly for years, the idea of the moment of silence. That students, the foundation of education is not knowledge, it's not information, it's not data, it's not making money. It's knowing that you be a responsible human being that lives up to higher ethics and morality. Tzedek and Yeshur. And to know that there's a God, there's someone you that listens and someone watches and listens and you answer to that. And not everyone does whatever they want. So though the Rebbe didn't make direct reference, but it's very clear from those sikhs, the Rebbe was referring to how do you balance in a country that allows freedom of all these freedoms I described, how do you counter it? Do you, the Rebbe never said, make a law that forbids certain speech. The Rebbe went on the offense and said, no, teach children responsibility from the youngest of age. Teach them there's a God. They answer to. So you don't just do what you want. So they'll regulate themselves. That's how I think the Rebbe would have approached this. And I say I think because I don't want to be, I don't have the break to say I know exactly what the Rebbe would say. But based on the Rebbe's general approach in these matters, the Rebbe felt that when you put the foundations in place, and obviously a school teaches children how to speak properly and how to speak menschlich and so on. Because even though there's a freedom of speech, it doesn't mean every student in a school can say whatever he wants in a classroom. But that's all part of the mashmas, all part of the responsibility of answering to a higher authority. As the Rebbe often gives the example of soldiers in an army. That there's a Kabbalah sale. These are the rules. And that will create adults that will also be accountable. And that preempts these type of issues. Now, again... The fact that I didn't see or hear specifically that I was speaking about freedom of speech in this context doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So if anyone has anything, please send it in to me and I, and I look forward to be able to share it. Okay, next question. Completely unrelated. As I said, I, there are many questions that come in faster than I can actually cover them every week, obviously. So what I'm doing is I'm going now in order of the last ones and thank God it is you know, there's the one, we're probably a month, two months behind, but that's simply because you can only cover that many a week. So please bear with me. If you have a question, it will be addressed. I know some people have written to me this week, last week. I'm sending another reminder. You don't have to remind. You want, you can. I'm not censoring you. But it's all recorded and it's all in order, and we will cover them and try to bunch them together when they're of the same family. The next question How do we know that Judaism is the true religion? 
With so many religions out there, how do we know that Judaism is the only one? So first let me refer you to episodes 9, 90, 96, and 195 that I discussed it even directly, either directly or indirectly this topic. I'll just say a few extra words, more words, but not going to repeat what I've said. There's no reason for that. We have it all, thank God, recorded. So it's all there for you to access. And I give you again, you can listen to these episodes and you can the timestamp, you can find exactly where I spoke about it. Generally speaking, um, when it comes to Bechal in general, wisdoms, ideas, even science, how do we know something is true? Who determines what, what is true? What are the criteria for determining something is true? I tell you something, is that true? Especially if it's something, a strong statement, and it's like a rule or a law that you need to follow. So we have guidelines for this. Scientific guidelines, we have historical, that are accepted by, by a consensus of people. Now, there are many disagreements regarding this as well. But how do you know? How do you know George Washington existed? Maybe a people said he existed. Maybe it was written about a, a fictional character. Some people say Shakespeare never existed. You know, we, we're no longer, it's hundreds of years later. How, how can we prove it? So there's different methods today. There's DNA testing and there's other testing. But we all know tests can be falsified and tests are not always conclusive, etc., etc. So there are guidelines. But something more important before I get to the guidelines. Every system has to have what we call axioms in English. In Hebrew, it's muskolos l'shenus. Things are given. We're accepting certain things. And we say initially, well, we're accepting this. And based on this axiom, the rest follows. I'll give you an axiom, for example, in science. That's no proof for it. There are many theories for different phenomena. But science, the consensus by scientists is that the simplest theory to explain something is the one that will be accepted. Someone will say, how do you know the simplest is the best is the only is the true explanation? Maybe there's another explanation. Because scientists feel the simplest is the way to go. That's the most logical. And it doesn't always, it's not always proven to be the case. Axioms. But it's a logical axiom. So the Torah, you're not going to find, when you open up a chumash, it doesn't say, first let's establish that there's a God. And then let's establish that the Torah was given by God. And then we'll establish that it's all emes. The Torah assumes that that's an axiom. God created heaven and earth. It's a given. The Torah doesn't go into any proofs. That doesn't mean there's no discussion. There is. And the Kuzi and the Ikrim and you have the Rasaga, all the Chakri Yisrael that talk about it. Same thing with the veracity and the Emes of Torah. How do we know? So again, you have the Kuzri and others that talk about it. But the first thing, before we get into any type of guideline, what is true, there are certain axioms. Now, if you want to analyze the axiom, by all means. But remember that some axioms, you can spend all your life trying to figure it out. And the fact is, you're not always going to figure everything out. You go to a doctor, you're assuming the doctor knows medicine. And you'll take the medication that he gives you. You're not going to go become a doctor to study it all, to make sure that everything that's prescribed to you, you're going to do. This is an example that Rebbe gives very often. So in our lives, we do this all the time. We rely on experts. How do you know the expert is right? So often we find the expert is a fake. We find that all the experts are, are, are following the wrong approach. It's a good theory for a certain time, and then it's disproven. People have been hurt. Medications that after testing and testing, and then it still turned out to be a, 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 a disaster. So we all know these risks, but intelligent risk means you try to follow experts that other experts say are experts, and all the different guidelines. 
of every system, but they all have similar guidelines to establish the truth of something. But an axiom is always a part of it. So you ask a Kabbalah sale Jew, will say, I accept that. You say, how do you know? Maybe you grew up with it, your parents told you. It's possible, but I trust my parents. And they trusted their parents. I have no reason not to. Someone else will say, I was hurt through Teirah and Mitzvah. I was hurt, God forbid, and abused. Therefore, I'm not so sure. I see it's a lot of it is a lot of stuff that is corrupt and so on. You're entitled to challenge. But remember, it's, it's affected you. Now, I'm not suggesting being hurt means that you're wrong. I don't know, but go, go explore it. But remember, there's always a challenge because we're subjective whether we believe or subjective whether we don't believe. That's why, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a choice. Because are you going to find absolute 100% proof? You can't even prove that I exist right now, even though I'm speaking to you. Because you could say illusion, that all philosophers that said, everything is an illusion. Maybe I'm just a digital illusion. Maybe we're all digital illusions. Maybe we're illusions, period. And every proof we give is also part of the illusion. Can you disprove that? 100%? You could say it doesn't sound right. You could say 99% you're sure that we are. But pure seichel to say absolutely? How can you say so you have to accept something, but you want the acceptance to be based on some type of intelligence. So I'm not so saying accept everything just because you can't prove something 100% doesn't mean you don't accept, you accept everything. No, because some things are completely hogwash and some things are complete rubbish and meaningless. So you have to use your intelligence. So as far as the proof, so to speak, goes, which I specifically did not want to start with that because every proof you can start challenging and questioning. One of them, the Kuzi says, the famous one that ever cites in a number of letters, is an Osin Yechidus that the Rebbe shared it, and that is the proof, the historical proof that is accepted by most, I would say not most, probably every system, both in the West and the East. How do we know a historical fact happened? I mentioned George Washington. A different events, an earthquake happened here, a tornado happened here, the wars that happened. How do we know? So the first answer everyone says it was documented. Someone wrote it down. But not one person, right? Because if one person wrote it down, they may have forged it. And you have stories that entire things happened that later become a reality simply because one person wrote it and a bunch of people accepted it. So you say, if there's a number of people that have written down an account, more or less this and this happened. If they say that their children that say, my parent, father said he had a father that was named so-and-so and he had a grandfather that came from here and so on, you assume it to be true, not because it's absolute proof, because why not? Now, if you find that a person is proven to be a liar, and a forger, then obviously you can't trust them. But these, this is historical proof is more or less accepted. That if there are books and documents and newspapers and human accounts, witnesses, and a few of them, you accept that that is what the facts are. You may say different opinions of exactly how it happened. And there are different opinions. You can have opinions about wars with Islamish to opposite stories, the ones that from one side or the other side. If you ever look at the stories of how World War II broke out, the Japanese version and the American version of Pearl Harbor. So the same can be applied. Let's apply the same thing to Martin Tera. Martin Tera does not claim one person was there, two people were there. It says millions of people were there. Came out of Mitzrayim. Moshe Rabbeinu went on the heart, came down with the luchas. They heard God's words. And then we saw it ourselves and not as strangers as the Rambam cites. And it wasn't, it wasn't due to one person believing in one person. Why is that less of a historical fact than all the historical facts of major events? Because it's so fantastic that Martin Tata happened. But if there's enough witnesses and no one ever challenged it, it's considered a, 
it's considered an acceptable historical proof. Now, I will argue why do people not accept that as easily as they accept George Washington? Because George Washington doesn't have any consequences. So he existed. So what? The Torah has consequences. It demands things from us. So then we put more bigger questions. Since you want something from me, I'm not so positive. I want to know more proof. So there are books that talk about this, and here's not the place to go through all of them. I just wanted to put it in context of how we talk about something that's true or not true. I would say that the most important thing is experiential proof. You know, whether Kriyas Yamsuv happened or not, if you believe, it says in the Teda. But that's not the whole basis of Teda that the sea parted. It's like you hear a story from your father and your grandfather, and you know, the overall picture resonates with you, and then they tell you, by the way, the sea parted. So you give them the benefit of the doubt. Not because you remember seeing it, because why not? There's truthful people telling you what it happened. Yiddishkeit is not built on a particular miracle or a particular suspension of nature. It's built on a system, a godly system given to the human race, to the Jewish people, to live by what God wants and live the most productive and beneficial lives. That's experiential proof. You see the proof in the pudding. Is it working? If Rahman al-Islam, God forbid, the Tater was saying things that were destructive, that destroyed marriages, that destroyed human morale, then you could start saying, what kind of system is this? But the fact is, it makes people healthier. You'll say, one second, there's a lot of religion that doesn't make people healthy. That's the way people teach it. I'm not talking, I'm talking about what the Tater says, how the Tater presents it. And if it's not presented right, obviously then it's a distortion of the Tater itself. Tremendous is going beyond the scope of what I want to talk about here. But this opens up the discussion. I wanted to just throw it out there. And uh, we'll take it. If you have any further follow-up questions, anyone, please, by all means. Next question. My mother is constantly harassing my wife. What to do? I know I'm not smiling because of the question. I'm just smiling at the diversity. That all these, sometimes the topics are a little more congru- congruous. Here there are different, different parts of the spectrum. But I guess in the month of El, when we're doing introspection on all matters, we go from between God and humans and now this. So the question writes like this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. My mother is constantly harassing my wife, badgering her to every opportunity. It's come to the point that my wife doesn't want to see my parents, and I don't blame her. Simultaneously, I do want to keep a relationship with my parents, who are, on their, who are in their 80s. Obviously, the best time would be Shabbos, as I work during the week. But it comes to the point that my wife doesn't, want, doesn't even want to spend Shabbos meals with them, as the verbal jabs and comments are unbearable. What do you suggest? Okay. It's a good time, Nell, to try to clean this up. So firstly, let me refer you to episodes 83 and 217, where I speak about this, not directly this question, but related, again, 83 and 217, and you can feel free to go there. I, not just feel free, I suggest you go there, because whatever I say now is going to complement what I've said then. Okay. Well, always hearing these things are always a little painful, or a lot painful, because you like to, you like to believe that parents love their children, children love their parents, and they can just communicate. And when there's a disagreement, there are cordial, cordial and amicable ways <clears throat> to resolve issues. Here, clearly, I don't know all the details. I don't know what was tried. I don't know what the, your parents would say, your mother would say in, in this context. I'm sure she probably does not see herself as the problem. And she's probably blaming either your wife or yourself. Um, so I think the first thing is to know what was attempted. And you as a son, it can make it a little easier for you and also harder for you 
to be involved. But at the end of the day, it's your mother. It's your wife's mother-in-law. And, um, and if it was the other way around, it was if her mother was harassing you, um, you would obviously have your positions. And here, thank God that you're, I, I respect you for this, that you're actually siding with your wife. You see, you don't blame her. In other words, you see your mother doing this. So with that and said, the question is, if you've ever spoken to your mother one-on-one, quietly, respectfully, lovingly, to see what's going on and to see what's deeper, what lies at the heart here. Now, often it could be a clash of personalities. They may be very similar. They may be very different. There may be control issues. It may have gotten off on the wrong foot in the beginning of the marriage. I don't know all these factors, which always leaves me somewhat um, in, a, in a position that difficult for me to give an intelligent answer without knowing all the facts. And I know some of you say to me, why can't you just answer black and white? That's that. Because without facts, my friends, it's like giving a diagnosis without knowing, examining, and evaluating everything. Would you like to be diagnosed by a doctor based on a few things that are shared with you without answering questions? So that's the similar idea. I'm not being defensive. I'm trying to explain why it's impossible to just give a black and white answer when you're dealing with human beings. These are souls. Every person is different. I'm throwing these questions back to you because it's vital to know what the story is. I'm sure you have tried, but I don't know what you did, and I don't know what the reaction was. And was there any opening? And as a son, you may be able to be of help here. Because it could very well be your wife also has, let's say, a strong side to her, and her reaction evokes, creates a uh, tit-for-tat, and it becomes a vicious cycle. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe it's at all not that way. So I want to correct and apologize for suggesting that, but, but I, I have no clue. With that all said, what I would suggest the following. I would, if things have been tried and nothing has worked, I would, I don't like the word ultimatum, but I would say to your mother, you, not your wife, don't put her into the ring with your mother, and say to her, we'd love to come for Shabbos Yontav, one meal, and we really want to work, everybody's going to work on being cordial and peaceful. And test it. Your wife may not want to, because you may have already tried it, so again, I don't know that. But let's assume you haven't, or let's assume you're ready to give it one more chance. That's what I would do. And if something happens, I wouldn't get angry at the time. I wouldn't say, you see, we shouldn't have come, and so on. I would prepare your wife and say, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'm with you. And we won't go back. And we'll be peaceful, we'll be loving, we'll be thank them, and we'll move on. And as painful as it is, you may not be able to go there for another meal, at least for a while, if that indeed happens. If... It could be the peace can be held and you can maneuver it or diffuse it if something starts happening and find some ground rules that it shouldn't happen and just keep it pleasant. In other words, stay away from controversial topics, stay away from confrontational issues and so on. Then maybe it can work and divide and conquer. Don't try to win. We don't need to win here. Not your wife has to win and not your mother has to win. It's not a battle of winning and losing. What you want to do is be able to create some cordial divide and conquer, find some little peaceful conversation. Talk about things that are more neutral, and you could play a role as the husband in this regard. It either is going to work or it's not going to work. If it doesn't work, then as adults, you have to make a decision. You don't want to go every time with your children. I'm not sure you wrote whether you have children. But uh, assuming that you do, and that's going to be their loss. And if your mother says, why don't you come? You'll say, we, every time we try to come, something happens. That's my approach. And that's tell me what happens. And hopefully it works out, especially we're going to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Yom Tevim, Sukkis, Zvan Sim And it should all be well. 
Next question. Very loud snoring. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Did the Rebbe ever advise about snoring? I tried all sorts of tools. Went to doctors and nothing worked. My wife says the only solution is to sleep on the couch. Well, I did look because I've, it's not the first one that's you're not the first one that's asked this question. I have not found answers till now. That's why I didn't want to speak about it. But you know what? I saw another question come in. And a time to talk about this. I have not found an answer from the Rebbe directly about this. Not in sikhs, not in uh, answers, etc. There may be, there may not be. I again, throw this out to all of you. If anybody has anything in Hebrew, snoring is nechira. That's called snoring. Please share with me if you do have something. I did find something interesting, not from the Rebbe, from the Balshemtiv. The Shivche Balshemtiv, which is cited as, as a somewhat of a source, says there's a story. He writes, I heard a story. Once a guest came and stayed by the Balshemtiv. He slept in that house, and at night, when he was sleeping, he snored loudly. The tzemach, I'm sorry, the Balshemtiv's son, Tzvi, was a little boy. He got very frightened. He came to his father and told him. So his father said, go to the room of the guest. Don't go in, but open and close the door without slamming it. Open and close it a few times. And you'll see he'll get quiet and you'll be able to sleep peacefully. That's what he did, and it worked. The next night, again snoring. So this time he didn't go to his father, so he went himself and did it, but it didn't work. So the next day he told the Balshemtov, this is what happened. The Balshemtov said, the reason I told you to open and close the door is because in the middle of the night, there's a, a, a guard shift, a shift of the guards. The Mamunim al Ashina, so-called the overseers of sleep, the angels, there's a shift of guard, and when you open and close the door, that was when the guard shift, the shift, the guard... The guard shifted, and therefore it was like a new sleep, and he stopped snoring. The next night, it was already after the guards had shifted, so therefore it didn't help. I'm repeating exactly as it says in Shiv Chebal Shemtev. So try it out and see if it works. Now, do you have to be machaven exactly when the guards shift? Do you need to, um, and why is guard shifting affecting this? It could be, it's like, as I said, the snoring was from the previous guard. Now that the new guard came in, so that protects him from snoring. Now we also know there's physical reasons. There's, God forbid, apnea and other things that can cause snoring and overweight and other issues. So there's always practical things that can be done. Um, and I, I, know, I don't know if it's great for Sholem Bayes to send your husband to go sleep in the couch or in the bathtub. So I don't know if that would be my advice, but that's what I found on the matter, and that's what I'll say right now. I'll add one more thing. In general, like many things in marriage and life, there are some things that are very annoying that one couple, one spouse does, the other person is very annoyed by it. Some things you just have to overlook because they're not life-threatening and they're not life and death. They're not fundamental to the relationship. I know this can be an issue because you know, loud snoring keeps people awake. So I think it's something to speak about. If you can overlook it, great. If you can't, maybe you have to speak to another doctor and find some ways. There are different solutions. I've heard that people have found ways to at least minimize it, sometimes sleeping on the side, not on the back or the front, which is anyway the way Idaf uh, Slofen has to sleep. Okay. Last, what's the connection to Chassidus applied? I've not found in Chassidus anything on snoring, but the fact of the matter is the nasal channels and cavities, there's a lot talked about in Eizen Chaitem Peh of Ak, Adam Kadman. The channels open, obviously, is a form of Ratzi Veshuv when you're breathing, 
exhaling and inhaling is Rotsi and Shuv. It's the life force. Achai is Rotsi One expression of it is the heartbeat, which is also affected by the breath. And another is the breath. So when breath is being blocked, because the channel is being blocked during sleep, we know Chesidah says, Shina, in the Maimonim on Shina, on Purim, Lailahu Noddash another Maimonim that speaks Shina is compared to Golas, when our faculties are not fully functioning. So we're not completely in control of the Rotsi Vishu flow. And snoring is one, one expression because you're gasping for air, basically. A channel is blocked and it's causing, the channels are constricted and therefore the breathing creates, and there's a flap of a certain piece of skin and that all gets, especially when it's thicker, and the breathing becomes constricted. So snoring is essentially a, a diminished form of flow in Ruchnius, and obviously clearing up snoring is clearing up those channels of Rotsi Vishuv, which is part of the Aveda of every Jew. This is I have not seen it inside, but I'll keep looking and maybe again someone out there can enlighten me, enlighten us on this matter. Let's do a few follow-ups. The follow-up one that I'm going to do is, I want to start with parenting. Because I've been pushing it off, pushing it off. There's a question back in episode 221 about parenting. A bunch of questions, and I'm going to continue the discussion over a few weeks. The questions were how to be a good parent, a parent that will fit the children of Okay. So I, in 221, I began speaking about the general principle of being a good parent. The general principle of being a good parent is the idea of not allowing your own personal personality and interests and subjectivity to get in the way. Very often, our anger or other things affect us and affect the way we parent. Very important to have bitl in that way. Now, we are not, we're not perfect human beings and not perfect parents. So I'm not saying we can always be perfect. But um, like when the Rebbe told one, one rabbi who hit, a rabbi that hit his child, it's his children, the Rebbe said, think about God, that this is God's child. How do you pick up a hand on God's child? You'll say, well, at the moment you're out of control. Well, that's the contemplation, just like it says in Pedic Memalaf and Tanya, Hini Hashem love a person has to think God is watching you. The same is in our parenting. God's given children for us our protection. We're gardeners. So that's a general attitude. I will address, so I, I just, the, the general attitude and looking at each child and their particular needs, how to control anger toward them, this is the way. To recognize and contemplate on this as much as necessary that these are God's children. We'll talk in a moment about when, this, when, need to, when there's a need to discipline. But it's not about your anger. Even when there's a need to discipline, because there's a need to discipline, not because you're angry. You can't let your anger to get in the way because, firstly, you won't be effective. Secondly, that itself is a bad example, and the child will learn from that as well and become an angry person when they see a problem. And many other reasons. Above all, it's all about not demoralizing a child, but helping a child grow. So if there's something that needs help, that needs discipline, think it through. Don't react spontaneously. Don't react reflexively or impulsively. Think it through. You can say, you know, something you did at school was a really bad thing. As I spoke then back in, two, in this episode 221, we're not going to ignore it, as some people, parents do. We're also not going to just come out angry and demoralize the child. We're going to think, what's the best way to address this? Because I love you so much, the parents should say, 
I think we need to address this to make sure it doesn't happen again and make sure that you be the best you can be. When a child senses that it's for the child's good, even at the moment they may not like being grounded or they may not like being punished or disciplined, but that's the message you come across that you convey, it will leave its impact. And that's how we have to look at everything. Everything is about pruning, growing, helping, weeding the garden in order for the beautiful flowers to emerge. When should we put our foot down and when not? That's an important question. It's hard to give a formula. You have to first determine how important of an issue it was. There are things that are fundamental. A child hurting another person, even a sibling. A child showing something that's a pattern of insubordination. Then there are things that are much more trivial. To go and every time you have to choose your battles. Because if you don't, the child will also not get a sense of discretion, what's important, what's not important. So very important to establish what are fundamentals. Fundamentals is that are direct, destructive type of behavior that are not acceptable. It could also be things that the child does as dangerous, dangerous to themselves or to others. But you have to distinguish that from things that may not be right, but something that you can overlook or something that's worthwhile not addressing right now, unless maybe it becomes worse or something like that. I cannot give a list of those things because if if you give me a situation, I can tell you what I think about it. I think parents have to be sensitive and see certain children, for example, have a tendency of getting other children also to make trouble with them. That is a more complicated issue because you don't want your child being that way. So this you need to address as well through incentives, through deterrence, through, through kindness, sometimes a carrot, sometimes a stick. How to deal with chutzpah? It's a good question. Some parents are very strict with that. Chutzpah to me is not good for the child. A child must have derecheres for a parent or for an adult. Others are very lenient. And I've seen both of them work, to be honest. So I don't have a black and white answer. I think it's case by case. I don't think that every act of chutzpah has to be punished in the worst possible way. And I don't think every act of chutzpah has to be ignored. You have to really know, like I mentioned, is it a pattern? Is this the child's personality? Because if it is, it may not be so simple to just... The child may be a disruptor in a good way. They challenge the status quo and they don't accept the norms. There's some, they could be like that type of pioneering spirit. But you have to teach them still that and respect because it's part of who we are. So you have to really see how much work is necessary because if you're going to try to change the child's colors, you can end up also causing this, something that's not healthy. That doesn't mean tolerating chutzpah. It just means finding creative ways how to deal with it. Then there are others that it's far easier to deal with that. And you know, once you tell them something or you show them that you're serious, they won't do chutzpah again. So again, these are case by case and it has to be really approached from all different angles and directions. Okay. I'm going to stop now with this. We'll talk more about parenting. There's more questions on this topic. I have some other follow-up that uh, from previous weeks. I'm thinking whether I should do them now or not. Namely, about writing pidgin to other Rebbes and Zionism. The problem is both of them are not so short. And I want to deal with the Chassidus question. So let me just see. I'm thinking out loud. First of all, let me just say, last week, I said I would look into someone cited that at the end of about bullying. So obviously it doesn't talk about bullying there, but it does talk about how to overlook the things that have done, been done to us. 
he translates there chatosi negdi negdi you should always have the chatoim right before you. So he explains there actually negdi means from a distance to keep you humble, but not that you should be dwelling and obsessing. So then he goes on because you need to always remember that God runs the world and that when things happen, there's always a deeper purpose and you have to sometimes overlook and learn from it and grow through it. So this is what the person was suggesting. It's a very good piece in Pedagogy al-Bakhlal to learn in general about looking overlooking certain things that when we feel affected or insulted or humiliated, things that how we can grow from that. In the end of chapter 11 of, uh, of uh, Geras HaTshuva. Actually, the topic is also similar. There is at the end of chapter 12 in Tanya, in Lekut HaMorim. And also, of course, in Geras HaKedish, where he talks about anger. But this, let's explain it somewhat differently, so we'll keep that aside. About the other follow-ups, I think what I'll do is, yeah, I'm going to save it for next week. Yeah, as well as the Zionism part. So let's address. This will be the last and final part of the uh, four-part series discussion, ongoing series on the question of the difference between the Kabbalah of the Ramak and the Rizal, and. Um, So in the last three episodes, 2000, two, I'm sorry, 224, 223, 224, and 225, I reviewed the difference between them and how explaining the Alter Rebbe's statement that one is Bechlal Messiah Mona. That Kabbalah in general, and of course with Chassidus, is an, we see clearly a certain evolutionary process where the ideas were understood a certain way in a more basic level, even very profoundly, and it became, Chassidus, Primis Atera developed it further to the point where we have a deeper gili of Chassidus, deeper gili of Teros Hashem Mashiach, but also helping us to deal with the Cheshach and deal with the challenges, which is the whole idea of Primis Atera that once was only learned by Yechidis Gula by individuals, and that became to the point that it became more spread, and that is our mitzvah legal is the mitzvah to reveal it, and of course the Baal Shem Tov's words, the Mashiach's words to the Baal Shem Tov, when your wellsprings will spread outward, Mashiach will come. And that itself, as the Rebbe explains, generation after generation, of seven generations where it spread further and further, both in quantity and in quality. So in that context, the Rizal adds to the Ramak and goes further. That's called the Chlam That the Ramak spoke primarily in Tayu, and the Rizal in Tikkun. Ramak's primarily in the Kudus, points, and Arizal Patsufim. And it fits with Arizal's words, as I cited very, very directly from his own writing in, the, in the, the Arizal's words that the Rachav writes in Agdoma Chaim, cited by the Rebbe Rashab, as I quoted, as well as in a piece at the end of Eitz Chaim. I'm not going to go over that again. I'm just summing it up. So everything works. There is a fundamental difference between the two differences of Kabbalah. But one is speaking more, as I said, <coughs> in Tayu, and the other in Tikkun, and one more in Nukudis, and another Patsufim, which essentially is another way of understanding Tayu and Tikkun. What's the deeper explanation? So Chassidus explains that the Aramak primarily spoke in form of Ishtalshlus, Ila Va'olul. That, in other words, the divine relationship with existence. Which itself was beyond how Mukabalim spoke about it before, and beyond 
the Rambam who, who speaks about who amado who yedeu yedu as we discussed, but the Rizal introduced the tzimtzum. Ramakla yodam in that tzimtzum. The tzimtzum introduces not just that God concealed his entire divine consciousness, but also we come to appreciate the, inf- the infinite distance and the einareich. So the reimamus of einsof. We begin to have a relationship even with that God and part of the dimensions of God that are beyond us altogether. Like the Eid Habligvu. And that taka is what allows Tikkun to manifest. So Toyu is still energy Nukudis. It's not yet fully developed, not fully expanded. Tikkun, because Tikkun is rooted and higher than Toyu, and the highest levels in the Kavana, that therefore there comes a whole structured existence which is only possible to fully understand when you understand the, inf- inf- the infinite distance of the divine. But that Rizal also, of course, speaks about the Kav and the Rishimu and Seydish Talshlus and Adam Kadman and Eris and Kalim. Because just as much as we need to know the infinite distance, we also need to know the relationship we have. That's why it says in Tanya, it's, it's Siva Milsa, according to Rizal, you could also understand in Atsilus, the divine connects and relates to us. So Rizal is not coming to negate that. But he introduces higher levels of the distance of the divine. And if you look through the Rabbeim, you'll see the Rabbeim itself also that happens generation after generation with the Rebbe taking it completely to another dimension, especially in the later years, talking about how Atmos is not bound by any rules and no laws and beyond anything that we can relate to. So there's ideas already mentioned in earlier Maimonim, but the Rebbe made it into a very fundamental concept. But now I wanted to continue and conclude with the Aved of all of this. So there's actually from the Rebbe, before we get to the Rebbe, I will speak about first two things I wanted to mention. One from Rab Isaac, from uh, Anastra Scheller. So in a Sefer of Anastra Scheller, and let me, let me quote it directly here. In Avedis Halevi, in the Hesophis, of the Avedis Halevi, there's a, 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 a essay called Introduction to Share Yichud, Vamuna. It's 69b and on in the print of, Aved, of Avedis Halevi. So he discusses in a fascinating way, of course this is Chsidish Chsidish, but nevertheless, he quotes the Al-Tarebbe, so you could see, he explains what the Mekobolim came to teach. The Ardus that they came to understand. How do you explain the Ardus of Hashem that's beyond all of existence? How do you reconcile that with existence and the multitude of existence and everything that the Nivra and the Beira are infinitely distant? So he explains what the Mukubalim came to do in that regard. And I'll just quote one or two lines, very fascinating lines, and then he says like this. That they explained it like the Yichud of a Neshama Beguf, Nefesh Beguf. And they gave different examples, Eir, Eir Hashemesh, and so on. Make sure I have it all here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he says these, these words that they wanted to establish that there's no Shinu in Hashem, like he speaks in Samarvon Vayelach. Why? Because they explained there's a Seder Shtalshlus. So the divine is somewhat removed from existence. Ainsof. Which is, of course, what the, 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 the Ramak says that Keser is not Ainsof. And the relationship of the divine with existence is on the levels of Keser, 
And there there is a stay of Shashlus Ilavolo. Avobatsmusi ain't shini. Then he says these words. Even though these mukabolim create a tikkun rav, through all ishtalshlus, nevertheless, he says, and they did not fully explain it, and, and then he goes on to explain, because a bunch of questions still remain hanging. And as a result of those questions, he goes on and says, that, and explains, then he says, a bunch of questions, then he concludes, okay, so those are questions on their end. Now, that's the pardis, he says. But then comes the Arizal. Here we are. On the page, Samachez Beis, he says, Because they gilem it's actually niglehem shorshe akabola amitis. The reason they didn't have that is because they didn't have the shorshe akabola amitis as it came to the Arizal. In the oilem of Tikkun and Partsufim. So that's why they didn't have full explanations of some of the contradictions. The was revealed by the Arizal. And the, the Rabban writes that he received all this that I received this either directly or indirectly from the Alter Rebbe himself. How he re- revealed and explained this Seydish Talshus of how Kabbalah emerged from that is all compared to the Ramak. So that's from Rabban Strasheller. There's another Maimer from the Rabbi Isaac Homlet. It's called Maimer Hashiflus Vasimcha, the last chapter, chapter 72, where he talks directly how the Kabbalah's Ramak and that is all and Chsidis are three levels in Revelation. He calls it actually Hishtalshlus. Hislapshus and Hashra. That the, that the Ramak is Ishtalshulus. That's why the Fi'erech, like I spoke, the commensurate levels. Arizal is Hislapshus, the Hislapshus of Patsufim in Eris and Kalim in, in, in Atsilis. And Chsidis is Hashra, where he speaks to the Megillah of the Balshamta, and Chsidis is bringing it to a whole other dimension. That's in chapter 72, Maim Rashifu's Vasimch. Okay. Now let's conclude with what the Rebbe has to say about this. What does the Rebbe say? So, there's two sikhs I want to refer you to. Yutes Kislev Tovshin Yutches and Shabbos Pasha Shmini Tovshin Memalov. Two times the Rebbe spoke that I found in uh, the difference between the Ramak and the Arizal. And here you see directly that the Rebbe does not speak about them as two separate things. He speaks about two steps in Avedis Hashem. In Yutas Kislev Tavshin Chai, he speaks that the Rizal is a Veda Lamaila serving God beyond transcendent way, like Shev of Kalalman, transcendent. Oh, you know what? Let me correct myself. No. That's the Ramak. Aveda Lamaila Medidavagbola, transcendent to you. And that Rizal is a Veda Shev Medidavagbola, imminence, being Bislabish in Tikkun, coming internally. And you say, does that, that didn't, didn't we speak before that Darizal introduces real transcendence? Yes, that's transcendence even beyond the transcendence of the Ramak. But because of that, that's why you can bring it into Aprimis. The Ramak has transcendence, but Taki, you can't unite with it completely because the divine is higher than we are. 
and Kesed is higher than Asiya. Even though Kesed to Asiya is closer than Kesed to Ainsov, but Kesed is still closer to Ainsov than Asiya is. And the Rebbe says, in the Shmini Sikh, he says, Nukudis is in the morning. When we say, Maida'ani, Kabbalah sale, that is Tayu. And then we expand it into Sphiris and Patsuvim throughout the day. So the Aveda of, being, of taking the, the Nukud of Maida'ani and expanding it into our Kechus Gluim, into our internal faculties. He says, again, again back to Yitzhak of Tavshachai, Chabad Chassidus is L'Shevis Yitzhara, taking the Rosh, secrets of Teirah, and putting it, and putting them in Seichel. Tayu is Makif and Ksarim. It's Ksarim, which means it's more transcendent, it doesn't come into, it's more Tzadik Bamanosi Yechaya, not Yechia. Chassidus came to teach, that you can't just rely on the Amunah and the Tzadik, but you have to do your Aveda, that's Tarizal again, Tikkun. Eirus Mo'atim, Kelim Rechavim he speaks about. That there's, uh, the, the energies are more diminished and the kalim are expansive. And then the Rebbe says a chiddush there that I have not seen anywhere else. He says that the kavone in the, in the so-called difference of opinion of, teyu, of the Ramach Teyu and the Rizal Tikkun is not Teyu and Tikkun. It's Teyu Shebet Tikkun and Tikkun Shebet Tikkun. And you see from Rabbi from Rab Isaac Zmaimer that he says the iskalulus of all three of Ishtalshlus, Islapshus, and Ashra. So, what do we see from all of this? What we see from all of this is that you have these ideas that, 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 that both the Ramak and the Riz are two starim in Aved. One is Kabbalah Sale, one is Kechus Premium. One more thing I want, to, uh, I want to add, and then we'll move on to the essays, and we'll conclude this. Um, give me a moment. Make sure I have everything included here. If you look in those sikhs, you're going to see a lot more detail. I just gave the, the overall picture. And he says clearly, that's what he says about that is on the Ramak. That's what I wanted to add. It says, It's because then we, what's the Ramak is talking about? Teyu. Teyu is a broken world. So he says, Ramak means Teyu Shebetikun. So that adds a lot as well in understanding the whole Bechlam Saiman and the Iskalos. Yeah. Very good. Okay, let's now go over to the... So, so one quick final point with the Aveda Shabbat So we see from this that everything in Kabbalah and all the levels is all within us. You can all find a reflection within us. The Arizal introduces the Primius, Tikkun, Edison, Kalim, Patsufim structure. How to make a structure of your life for the divine. The Ramak introduced before that, introduced more the Eris Makifim, Teyu. But it's interestingly, because of the tzimtzum, we're able to bring the divine that's beyond everything and bring it into primis. Now, the tzimtzum allows the yichud of avaya nelikim, the yichud of seva v'mamala. According to the Ramak, because everything is ultimately still seva v'mamala, so seva v'mamala also remain somewhat apart, makif and primi. And that is how they all come together in a fusion, 
where you can actually make a dirbe tachtenim. And in the, from that Rizal itself, of course, these explanations, the Chassidus developed even further in explaining all these ideas. Okay, let us do the three essays. The three essays are, essay number one is how to stay, stay as an S-T-A-Y, inspired and live your truth. Rifki Wolanski, age 31, Moscow, Russia. Shlucha. There's probably nothing that makes us more uncomfortable than feeling like a fraud for covering up something that's inside us. It can lead to terrible feelings of guilt, shame, and isolation, and even affect our physical health and ability to function productively. But what can we do if it seems that we, who we are inside is not something we are supposed to express? In this essay, we will explore the popular perception and solution to living your truth and contrast it with the Hasidic model of what it means to live your truth. It goes on to compare the popular strategies for living your truth, which includes a lot of things that are not always so healthy, different psychological approaches and so on. Will the real me please stand up? The three layers within you that Chassidus speaks about, based on the Oren in the Kedush Kedoshim, the three, the outer golden box, and the other two inner boxes, and the masks that we wear. The false identity, he bring, she brings an example in the Halacha. What is the example in Halacha? You can look it up. Okay, there's a lot that the Rebbe brings in the Sikhs on this matter. Moments of truth we can relate to. How inspiration can be a problem if you don't maintain it. And how to maintain it, bring it down into your life in a living in the moment with a very powerful, good conclusion. And both on a personal level and a global level. And she uses STAY as an acronym. STAY. S. Say it. Beficha. T. Think it. Bilavavcha. A. Act it. La Seisei. Y. Ask why. Well done. Very well done with really practical exercises. Something everyone can do on many different levels, no matter what background you come from. So I commend you for that. Especially the ending is excellent, excellent exercises. Okay. Essay number two is the Hasidic response to skepticism. Shalom de Bermaskowitz, age 22. I said Rivki Wilensky, I said it was age 31. I believe so, yeah. Age 22, Brooklyn, New York. Centrally, Shiva Temchit Labavich. This is a Hebrew essay. <clears throat> Essentially, exactly as the title suggests, that people have skepticism. And how do you deal with skepticism? So it's a very creative essay, taking a topic that is uh, often not spoken about, and uh, looking at it from a philosophical point of view and a theological point of view, the different forms of, of doubts that people have. It's a pretty extensive essay, and obviously comes to how Chassidus explains um, how you understand and deal with skepticism in a very creative way, not by denying it or ignoring it, but understanding that the skepticism itself has a role to play. So well done as well. Thank you for that. And finally, the last essay also in Hebrew, Say Goodbye to Negative Emotions and Begin Living Redemption. By Hannah Ruth Abraham, age 47, Kfar Chabad, Israel. She runs Machon Itan, Okay. Eisan, or maybe Eisan. So, obviously, this talks about negative emotions and living Gu'uladik. Taking our negative feelings and looking with the positivity that Chassidus infuses us with, to look at everything with a good eye, look at everything as productive, and, and uh, does this quite, quite well, and also gives a step-by-step um, uh, uh, blueprint and guidelines how to do this. And she explains how she does it in her organization, Eitzan, Shetas Eitzan or Eitzan. 
and in doing this using Tanya, Eson is of course the letters of Tanya, in applying this to people's lives of using Geula Dika thinking to, 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 to positive thinking. Turn it into positive thinking. Okay, with that we conclude the essays. Everyone have a Ksivach Simateva, a very Felechen, a very a meaningful and introspective Chedeshel. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been Chsidis, My Life Chsidis Applied, episode 226. Everyone have a very good week and a good, a good Kibench to Yod.